This is the FCB Radio Network, home of the best personalities, and where real talk lives. Online at fcbradio.com. FCB. Welcome back to the Growing Patriot Podcast. I'm your host, Amelia Hamilton. The American Revolution was off to a bumpy start. We'd had far more losses than wins. This time, we're going to talk about a major turning point, the two battles of Saratoga. Let's dive right in. My name is Eric Schnitzer. I'm a park ranger. I work for the National Park Service at Saratoga National Historical Park. What I do in in my job is I talk to people about history, particularly the Revolutionary War, particularly the, the Northern Campaign of 1777, which culminated in the battles of Saratoga and the first ever surrender of a British Army in world history at Saratoga on the 17th of October, 1777. I write about it, I lecture about it, I, I do school programs about it, so it kind of runs the gamut of, of different applications. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, love it. Love the Revolutionary War, learning about it ever since elementary school, so it's a dream come true. Let's dive right into to the Saratoga campaign then. Let, I would love to hear a little bit about how that campaign came to be and why, why did it happen there? Why did it happen then? Why was it so important? In 1776, you have the 13 colonies declare independence from Britain formally, and you have uh, the creation of the United States of America. So Great Britain is very concerned now that what began as a rebellion, uh, principally in New England, has now become a full-fledged war uh, against, you know, what the Americans in revolution anyway were calling a new country, the United States. The Britain can't have that, you know? So they have to try their best in 1777 to completely quash, completely destroy this new United States. So the British had two plans to do it. One plan was to have the main army capture the United States capital of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That army was not the one at Saratoga. That army uh, actually campaigned and succeeded in capturing the capital. Of course, it didn't end the war, it didn't stop the United States, but they hoped that that would, that would help do that. Didn't work, thankfully, but that's what they hoped would happen. The other army, though, other British army, was to move from Canada and uh, come down from Canada and capture the city of Albany. So on one hand, you got the city of Philadelphia, biggest you know city in the Western Hemisphere. And on the other hand, you have the little itty bitty city of Albany. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Albany at the time had a couple thousand people. It was not a metropolis. It wasn't even the capital of New York State like it is today. Back then it wasn't. That was another city. Um, but it was, however, Albany, the perfect midpoint between British-held Canada and British-held New York City. Also, Albany was located very close to where the Mohawk River cut uh, and combined with the Hudson River. If you look on a map today, you can see the Mohawk River. It's one of those rare um, east flowing rivers that flowed from the west to the east, flowed into the Hudson, which, of course, the Hudson River flowed 
uh, uh, north-south uh, directly uh, uh, into you know uh, New York Harbor there. So the British thought that Albany was a great place to to conquer, and the plan was that if the British got to Albany. From there, the army that captured Albany would receive further instructions. Where to go from there? What do you do? Albany's no big deal, but what do you do from there? Do you move on Boston? That was a consideration that the British had. Do they meet up with another British army that they had sitting in uh, Rhode Island? Maybe they were going to take the army from Albany and have it march down to New York City, uh, capturing various American forts along the way and destroying them and and trying to rout the American army. So they didn't really know what they would do after they captured Albany. So that was the plan. And the army set off from Canada. Uh, the army, the British army commanded by Lieutenant General John Burgoyne was successful in capturing various forts like Ticonderoga and Fort Independence, which was on Mount Independence, uh, basically a sister fort to Fort Ticonderoga. They also defeated the American forces, military forces in battle. The July Battle of Hubbardton, Vermont, the July Battle of Fort Anne fought in New York. So the British started off pretty strongly, pretty well. And the Americans, unfortunately, lost battles, abandoned forts and retreated as the British advanced. But ultimately, the American army gained strength by a very late summer, gained strength and thought that they could try to make a stand against this British invasion from Canada. So the British chose the what we call avenue of approach, which is they're the ones with the plan, they're the ones on the mission, they're the ones with the set goal to get to Albany. So it's up to the Americans to try to figure out where along that line to try to stop them. And the American army under the command of Major General uh, Horatio Gates eventually decided to move up to Bemis Heights. Uh, Bemis Heights is not a well-known place on a map today, but it's there. Uh, it's uh, located slightly above Stillwater, New York, which is located about 30 miles north of Albany. Uh, so the American army planned to make it stand at Bemis Heights. So you see uh, the British are coming from the south. The Americans are from the north. The Americans decided where to try to stop. And that's why you have the two armies intersect at just north of Bemis Heights in the battles of Saratoga. Gosh. And how had the American army gained strength over the summer? So I know that, like yeah. you said, they got off to a pretty rough start. They did. When they had to evacuate Forts Ticonderoga and Independence in early July 1777, they only had a few thousand troops and they lost many in especially the Battle of Hubbardton, the Battle of Fort Anne, they lose more. Um, militia are kind of in and out, you know, militia, depending on how uh, long the state of origin is going to employ them for. So the state of Massachusetts might say, okay, we need a thousand militia to help out the American army, but we're only going to let you go and help them out for two weeks, you know. Mm -hmm. And the American command is complaining, uh, Ooh, thanks for sending your militia, Massachusetts, but we need them longer for two weeks. This yeah. is a whole campaign. It's going to take months. We need long-term service militia. So militia are back and forth. But it's really the continental reinforcements that are going to bolster the American army. And the way it worked was this. Um, George Washington was the commander in chief of the whole army. And he's the guy who decides where different regiments are going to go if they're going to be transferred from one department to another. The Continental Army as a whole was divided into various departments. The Northern Department, which is where 
Saratoga was located. That's basically all territories uh, from Kingston, New York, north. Uh, Kingston is maybe 50, 60 miles south of Albany. So Kingston, New York, and north. Uh, if you have a bunch of American regiments sitting in, sitting in Boston, the American commander in the northern department, let's say at the battles of Saratoga, they can't order those troops to come in and help them out. They have to ask Washington to transfer them. So throughout the entire summer, the American commander was requesting reinforcements from Washington, saying, holy cow, Washington, we're, we're, we're being overrun up here uh, uh, north of Albany. The British are, are really gunning for us. An entire army is coming out of Canada. We need reinforcements desperately. And so what Washington decided to do was take the army that was kind of looking at New York City, because New York City was a British possession, the mm -hmm. army in the Hudson Highlands, north of the Hudson Highlands, Washington decided to completely dismantle that army, not 100%, but pretty much take all of the troops uh, for himself uh, down in Pennsylvania to defend Philadelphia, and he sent a bunch north to help out the Americans uh, against the British invasion from Canada. Unfortunately, that left the, the troops down in the Hudson Highlands pretty open to attack, and they were attacked in October of 1777 from British coming out of New York City, and they unfortunately lost the, the, you know to the British onslaught because they their forces were sapped of, of these guys. So the reinforcements, most of them came from the Hudson Highlands, although there was a very important American unit, only 400 guys. So we're not talking thousands and thousands, but this one unit of 400 guys from Virginia and Pennsylvania were essential. They came up as a reinforcement specifically requested by the Americans up in the Northern Department. And Washington sent them, thankfully. These guys were riflemen, commanded by Colonel Daniel Morgan. Most people think that everybody had rifles then. Rifle, gun, it's kind of synonymous, but that's not really true. Uh, most weaponry at the time in military uh, use, and even in hunting use, were smoothbore guns. They had a certain level of accuracy, you know, 100 yards. Uh, but if you're looking to shoot let's say an enemy soldier at 200 yards, your bullet won't even go that far. A rifle though is a particular kind of weapon that in the hands of a skill, skilled marksman, that, that person could shoot the nut out of a squirrel's mouth at 250 yards. They're that good. And that's what the people in the Northern Army, the American Army didn't have, no rifles up here. Uh, the rifling, rifled weapons were uh, something that you'd find down in Virginia, the Carolinas, Maryland, Pennsylvania, not up here, not not in New York, not in New England. And so those 400 guys were sent north and they proved to be very important in the battles of Saratoga. Okay, so where where did the two armies meet then? I know they had a, a particular place in mind. Is that what how it actually came to be? What happens is the American army um, on the 12th of September, 1777, moved up to a place called Venus Heights, which is, uh, like I said, about 30 odd miles north of Albany. And what they did was they began to construct fortifications. They set up camp and they constructed fortifications, defensive fortifications, bristling with artillery, because they knew that the British would be coming right through that area on, on, its, you know, on the British Army's way to Albany. It was really the only way the British had to get to Albany. So there was no question that the British would ultimately go uh, right through that area. So the fortifications were under construction and the American army had one week to build them before the British even arrived. So that, that's good you know, timing. Uh, it's not like the Americans just got there in time and then the British showed up, not at all. No, the Americans were preparing their defenses uh, in advance of the eventual British 
approach. So when the British were getting close, and now we're talking the 17th of September, what they decided to do was set up a camp a few miles north, and they stayed there for about two days, trying to figure things out, send out scouts, you know, uh, try to figure out how best to approach the American camp and, and the defenses, because the British knew what the Americans were up to, and the Americans knew that the British were just a few miles north. So, you know, both sides, there was some skirmishing involved, etc. But on the morning of the 19th of September, the British made their move. What they did was they packed up their camp and they advanced upon the American defensive lines in three separate columns. And the idea was that two of those columns would be the attack columns and they would attack the American lines of defense. And that the British hoped anyway, that the Americans would flee in a panic screaming, kind of like they did at Ticonderoga. They fled, not screaming maybe, but they fled without putting up much resistance. And the British were hoping that precedent uh, that that precedent would happen again. You know, what happened in July is good enough uh, for what will hopefully happen in September. So the British hoped that the Americans would retreat and then the British would then continue their way onto Albany. What ended up happening, however, is that as the British advanced on the morning of the 19th of September, the Americans moved out to meet the British in battle. And what began as a skirmish late in the morning of the 19th of September began a full-fledged battle. And this battle called the First Battle of Saratoga or the Battle of Freeman's Farm was one of the longest battles of the Revolutionary War. Not the biggest, not even with the most casualties. There were many casualties, don't get me wrong, but it was one of the longer battles of the war. It lasted about eight hours, seven to eight hours. Battles generally don't last that long. Battles are usually a few hours in length, but this one was a long battle. At the end of the day, the British won. They won. The British won. But it was kind of like Bunker Hill, the Battle of Bunker Hill, right? The British won the field. They they, they conquered the field. Uh, they won the peninsula, but they suffered way more casualties. And in this case, in this Battle of Freeman's Farm, the British lost about 580 officers and soldiers killed, captured, wounded. The Americans, about 320 killed, captured, and wounded. So the British won the field. The Americans withdrew. But where did they go? They went back to their camp at Bemis Heights. Yep. Okay. So why was this so so different? Why why did the Americans not flee this time? Why did it, why was it such a long battle? Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. So the Americans didn't flee because although they lost the battle, they realized that they had the strategic edge. The fact that the British suffered more casualties was not lost on the Americans. The Americans weren't allowed to count casualties after the battle, of course, but they understood, those that fought in the battle understood fully that they, they, they lost technically because they lost the field, but the British clearly suffered more. And there were Americans talking about how many redcoats there were dead on the field of battle. And just those visuals uh, were, were clear, uh, a clear sign that the British were really going to just uh, uh, not have any initiative after that fight. And indeed they didn't. The British, there was concern that the British would try to uh, press the attack the next day. They didn't. The Americans were prepared for it and the Americans were on the defensive. So right there, they have an advantage. Plus I should add that the Americans by this time in the campaign also had an advantage of numbers. The American army by the time the, of the first battle of Saratoga, the 19th of September, had about 8,300 officers and soldiers. The British forces, 
didn't have much more than that, honestly. So both sides were about equal. And although the British had a lot more artillery than the Americans did, the Americans had a lot more riflemen. Uh, the British riflemen numbered about 50, 60 guys, whereas the Americans had about 400. And the Americans were behind prepared defenses. Already that's an advantage because if you attack a fort, you better have a lot more attackers than the defenders because if you don't, you're probably going to lose, right? And the Americans understood this. Plus, you have reinforcements coming in almost every day, mostly in the form of militia. Finally, states like New York, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, uh, they decided to, to, to augment the American army at Bemis Heights with militia reinforcements. Uh, so thankfully, they were uh, uh, coming uh, to join the camp. So the Americans were in a really good spot. Plus, um, the person who led the American, let me rephrase, the person who commanded the American attack on the 19th of September uh, was a general named Benedict Arnold. Mm -hmm. Benedict Arnold was the uh, third in command of the American army at the battles of Saratoga. And although he wasn't on the field of battle leading troops into the fight, he was directing things from afar. And his report to General Gates, the American commander, was a pretty positive one. He, he acknowledged that, yeah, we lost, but look what we did. I mean, we made the British bleed, seriously bleed, significantly bleed. British deserters came into the American camp after that battle. In fact, the very next day, you had a guy come in from one of the British regiments that suffered the most in the Battle of Freeman's Farm. And he gave a, you know, it's just anecdotal, right? But it's here you have an enemy report. Uh, from a guy de who deserted his comrades who wanted no part of that anymore saying okay uh you might be interested in this americans we suffered huge losses and our army is not in any position to make any further attack at the moment uh, you could say that burgoyne's advance was stymied at that moment they were just uh sitting there uh, there's a reason why they sat there for two and a half weeks after that battle uh believe it or not uh, but um the british were in no position to follow up on their victory after that battle in Farm. Yeah. So then how did the second battle come to be and how, how did that go? The second battle of Saratoga happened two and a half weeks after that first battle. This is a very rare thing. You don't have situations in, in any war where you have camps, mobile camps that have set up camp within less than two miles of each other, fortified, and you have scouting and skirmishing, you know, skirmishing parties and scouting parties sent out from either camp. And you have some small firefights. But both both sides are basically just strengthening their defenses. And it's a really odd thing. Usually you'll have a fort and an attacking army and the attacking army sets up camp and sets out siege cannons. And they try to break down the walls of the fort and the fort defenders try to stand against the attack. In this case. You don't have that situation happening. You have two mobile armies that are stuck. Now, as for the uh, American army, they're really just waiting for the British to attack them because Horatio Gates knows he has the advantage behind his well-prepared defenses. As for the British, though, they have a different situation. They got to get to Albany, right? But how best to do that? Well, it just so happens that a day and a half after that Battle of Freeman's Farm, General Burgoyne, the British commander, got a secret letter from the British commander in New York City. And this letter from this commander, Sir Henry Clinton was his name, the letter said to Burgoyne that, hey, uh, General Clinton here, General Burgoyne, I'm going to, if you want me to, send an attack force north out of New York City and create a diversion in the Hudson Highlands. 
And this diversion will be so good, so powerful that Horatio Gates is going to have to split his force in half so as to see to my threat in the South, making it easier for you to get to Albany. Mm -hmm. And Burgoyne responded right away saying, yeah, please do it. You know, the quote is, do it my friend directly. That's what he says. So the letter is sent and Clinton indeed does, does exactly what he planned to do. But after two and a half weeks, it didn't appear that any diversion happened. From Burgoyne's perspective, he's isolated. He doesn't know what's going on. His intelligence, his information from the South is nil. He's getting nothing. Um, who uh, people that Sir Henry Clinton tried to send messages with to get to Burgoyne's army, none of them came through. Uh, they all failed. Some of Burgoyne's messengers got through the Clinton, but it wasn't reciprocated. Clinton tried, but they were just captured or they uh, the, the spies uh, decided uh, not to not to go through with it because it was too dangerous. So General Clinton, or I'm sorry, General Burgoyne, after two and a half weeks, was realizing, okay, I really have to do something. I have to take uh, the situation into my own hands now. So he came up with a plan, and the plan was that on the seventh of October, he would lead out of camp a probing force, uh, like a scouting force of fifteen hundred guys. So it's a big force. And he was going to march this thing in the woods and through the fields toward the American camp. And when he got close enough to the American camp, he was going to look at it for himself, which the British hadn't actually seen the American camp yet because of the woods. You know, they're only about a mile and a half to two miles, be, you know, uh, separating the two armies. But there's woods in between them. They can't see each other. Right. So Burgoyne determines that. All right. When I see the American camp, I'll decide whether or not to attack with my entire army, just an all-out attack, the next day on the 8th of October. Or if the American army looks too strong to attack, I'll wait a few more days. Hopefully, Sir Henry is going to do something in the Hudson Highlands, and a diversion will be created, and Horatio Gates is going to march south or something like that. And if that doesn't happen, I'm going to retreat north on the 11th of October. That was the plan. So Burgoyne moves out, he gets to a field, a couple of fields actually, um, uh, on his way to the American camp. He sees a house, some officers get on top of the house, they try to look for the American lines through spyglasses, they can't see the American lines because of the trees, they're too tall, but in the wheat fields that they're located in, what do they find? Wheat. And that's important because the soldiers' rations have been cut between the battles of Saratoga because they have no supply lines. Whatever food they have with them is all they got unless they can forage from the surrounding areas. So here's an opportunity to forage. So General Burgoyne's like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna wait here a little bit, a few hours, allow the foragers to harvest the wheat, bring it back to camp, and then we'll continue later on uh, in the afternoon with this probing force idea. Now, the British are out there. The Americans are aware of it. The uh, uh, American command, Horatio Gates, Benedict Arnold, they're dining at Horatio Gates' headquarters. Uh, dinner at the time, you know, is, is the after, early afternoon meal. And they're at dinner with a bunch of other officers and reports come in that the British are on the move. And the Americans think that the British are out to attack them. We have to remember, the Americans don't know what the British plan is, but the Americans think the British are out to attack them. And so Horatio Gates is like, oh, we should do something about that. And Benedict mm -hmm. Arnold said, Please let me go and check things out. Let me go. Uh, I, I promise I'm not going to cause a major battle. You know, I'm not going to do something crazy. I just want to see this situation for myself to gather intelligence. And so Gates lets him do that. 
some troops are sent out by Arnold and by Gates. You know, they coordinated uh, some scouting troops to be sent out to try to make sure that the British are 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 um, going to have some resistance if they continue on a march. Mm. Um, and then her, uh, Benedict Arnold returns back to camp, and Horatio Gates is waiting for him. And the report, and Benedict Arnold says, this is from an eyewitness who wrote about it right after. Benedict Arnold says, "It is late in the day, but give me some men, and we'll have some fun with them before sunset." <laughs> he's being a little sarcastic when he says we'll have some fun with them he's talking about the enemy we'll have fun with them you know uh before sunset and gates agreed gates agreed and said okay benedict arnold you can direct an attack with a massive reinforcement because the troops that we have sent out are are so far you know not 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 adequate enough mm -hmm. uh so benedict arnold was a commander of this all-out attack on the british positions on the wheat fields and the British, within less than an hour, the British forces were beaten and they retreated. They just, it was a chaotic retreat. There was an attempt to form a, what they call a rear guard, which is like a, a blocking force to protect your retreating force. And that didn't go well. Uh, the British general who commanded the rear guard, Simon Fraser, was shot and mortally wounded. And come to find out, in the entire Revolutionary War, the British lost only two generals to being shot in battle. The whole war, only two generals were shot in battle and, and Frazier was one of them. Uh, and, 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 you know, shot and died, I should say. Shot and died in battle and Frazier was one of them. So uh, the British retreated, they retreated back to camp. The Americans were in hot pursuit. The Americans attacked uh, a fortification in the British camp. It didn't go well, the Americans withdrew, but other American forces in that attack attacked another part of the British camp and they captured it. One of these defensive positions, they captured it and the soldiers that were defending those positions just fled into the woods. Um, when that particular fortification, uh, a, a place called Bremen's Post, Bremen was the commander of the fort, Bremen's Post was captured. General Burgoyne realized, that's it. There's no way I can get to Albany now. I've got to retreat. So the retreat began the following day. Wow. And why is that such a big deal? <laughs> you know, that's this was a, a big, a big turning point. This was a big deal. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah. that? Sure. The British retreated about seven miles north to a place called Saratoga. Today it's called Schuylerville. Funny enough, the battles of Saratoga didn't actually happen in Saratoga, okay. but the surrender did because okay. the Americans pursued Burgoyne and forced his surrender, which occurred on the 17th of October, 1777. And that was a big deal, like you said. Um, if you look at other American military fortunes in the year 1777, specifically with George Washington fighting against the British in Pennsylvania, it wasn't looking good. George Washington lost one of the biggest battles of the war called the Battle of Brandywine. It was a horrible disaster. Uh, Philadelphia was captured. There was something called the Paoli Massacre in which you had the British make a nighttime attack on unsuspecting American troops and uh, they were just scattered, unfortunately. Uh, you had the Battle of Germantown, another loss, American loss. So the American main army commanded by Washington just wasn't uh, cutting it, unfortunately, with all of these losses, to say nothing of the loss of the capital city. But compare that with what happened in upstate New York. The first time in world history that a British army ever surrendered 
was at Saratoga. It had never happened before. The French could never do it. The Spanish, you can name whatever country you want, never happened before. And that it happened to what the British called rebels, because to them we're rebels, you know. We we were we are we call ourselves, yeah, we're from the United States. We're a legitimate country. We're not rebels anymore, you know, but the British obviously don't see it that way. But to lose to rebels, you know, that's something that the British can't abide by. And so um when you look at the various debates in Parliament, which were recorded, they you know they they published the uh, the minutes of the parliamentary debates. Uh, parliamentarians were saying this was the biggest disaster that had ever been fallen, that has ever befallen the British army, uh, and it was. It was the the, the 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 British army surrender. So obviously, you're going to have um, a lot of of excitement and reinvigoration of the patriotic cause in a lot of Americans who had become disheartened. You know, a lot of Americans were thinking, there's no way that we can win this revolutionary war. The British Army's too powerful. Look what they did with Washington in, in Pennsylvania time and time and time again. Well, when you compare it to what they could do at Saratoga, what the Americans could do at Saratoga, well, uh, now Americans are thinking, okay, you know what? We can beat the British after all. Not just in a battle here and there, but in, in force an actual army to surrender. Uh, something that never happened before, amazing. The other, major, major repercussion of the Saratoga surrender is, of course, the French alliance. Mm -hmm. The French alliance, that is the big takeaway from the Saratoga surrender. When the French heard that the first ever British army surrendered at Saratoga, they were absolutely elated. They loved it. Now, you know, the French hated the British, uh, but and, and they liked us in, in a way, they, or at least they liked that we were fighting against the, <laughs> the British. Um, and we had people over in France, like Ben Franklin, trying to convince the French to help us out. And they weren't helping us out with weapons and gunpowder and clothing and blankets and tents and things like that. But what we wanted was a formal alliance. We wanted the French to recognize us as a real country. We can declare ourselves to be the United States of America all we want, but if nobody else is going to acknowledge it, then we are illegitimate in the eyes of the world. We're not real in the eyes of the world. Now, Britain will never recognize us until we beat them. But if we can get the French to recognize us, now we have a real legit nation in the world of nations that sees us as a reality. And what we also want from them is a military alliance. We want them to help us out with their army, with their navy. And so that happens as a result of the surrender of the British in Saratoga. In February, February 6th of 1778, you have the preliminary treaty signed by our ministers like Ben Franklin in France and the French government. And so finally you have recognition of the United States by France and you have a formal military and trade alliance, too. So we can be trade partners now, legally, at least in our eyes. Of course, the British call all of this illegal. Right. The British <laughs> declare war on France. France declares war on Britain. The Spanish get involved. Now, the Spanish and the French are very close-knit. They're, they're blood brothers, so to speak. They're from the same dynasty. And so whatever France does, Spain usually follows, or vice versa. And so in 1779, Spain declared war on Great Britain. They said, okay, we won't ally ourselves with the United States. We'll help them out covertly. We won't ally ourselves. We won't send them, you know, ships and troops. We'll send them some stuff, some money, uh, but we're gonna go to war with Britain. And this is important because not only do we have French help 
in America to fight against the British. And of course, this manifests itself most obviously at Yorktown, Virginia in 1781. But what happens is a worldwide war is created, a worldwide war. Great Britain can no longer afford to focus with you know laser-like military precision on America, on this rebellion in America. No, now they have to look at defending their own home turf. They have to look at defending other colonies and provinces throughout the entire world. Because of the way the colonial system worked, the, the British had a, a vast colonial empire. They had colonies in the Caribbean. They had colonies in India. They had uh, colonial possessions in Africa. They had the Mediterranean Sea. They had them all over. Gibraltar, of course, and the Iberian Peninsula. You, you know what the Spanish were gunning for. Of course, they did. They tried. They didn't succeed. Uh, but, but the Spanish and the French also have colonial possessions all over the place. And so you have a worldwide war created. And then the Netherlands gets involved in 1780, right? You have a worldwide war created from uh, Newfoundland all the way down to Guiana, in South America, uh, from Central America, Honduras, the British invaded Honduras, tried to take it from the Spanish, all the way out to uh, Padang in Sri Lanka, uh, where the Dutch had, had a, a port city there that the British captured. Uh, uh, so you had this expansive worldwide war. You had also major fighting going on in the subcontinent of India. Uh, mm -hmm. India you know, wasn't one, like, like Germany, wasn't one nation like it is today. It was composed of a lot of independent sultanates and kingdoms. And one of those, one of the larger, more powerful ones called the Sultanate of Mysore decided to declare war on Great Britain. Uh, and so you had another war happening in India simultaneous with the Revolutionary War. Again, Britain can now raise regiments at home but they can't send them all to you know, all the redcoat troops to America. Now they got to send them to the Caribbean and South America and Africa and India and you know Gibraltar and all over the place. So by 1781, when the second ever British army surrenders at Yorktown, uh, um, you know the British they're spent. You know the, the king George III he wants to continue the war effort, but uh, his ministers are even thinking mm, this isn't going well. We're not going to win this. We can't win. We have to try to sue for peace. Yeah, gosh, yeah. This was a major turning point in in world history, not just in in one war. Yeah. So, um, to wrap things up, I always like to hear some of the lesser known anecdotes about about different historical events. Do you have a have a favorite story about the battles of Saratoga? Yeah. Um, okay. This is an odd one, but that's what anecdotes are sometimes. Yeah. Right? They're odd, yeah. unexpected, unusual. Uh, this one you won't find in many history books. It's uh, uh, kind of a, a rare story, and in the end, it's not like it's groundbreaking. You wouldn't write a book about it, perhaps, but. There, there's a story. It's absolutely real. I actually did the research on it. I, I posted it, posted it online too, so you can even check it out if you want uh, to get all the details. Um, before the Revolutionary War began in France, there was a a teenager, a nobleman. He was a uh, or noble boy, right? Uh, nobleman, yeah. noble boy. Uh, he was what's called a chevalier. He's a knight, a chevalier. He's the second eldest son of a, a comte, which is a, a, a French nobility title. Mm. And so his elder brother was given permission to join the French army as an officer. And this, this kid, uh, Louis-Joseph is his name, uh, the Chevalier d'Antroche, uh, he wanted to join the army too. 
And he was told by his parents, no, you can't do it. Instead, you have to join the Catholic Church because you're going to be a bishop someday. And little Louis Joseph said, okay. So he goes to study to become a, a bishop eventually under his uncle, who was a bishop in the Catholic Church. And uh, this is in 1774, just before the Revolutionary War began. And he decided that he didn't like it. He didn't want anything to do with it. And so he left. Here you have a teenager, a kid, who's a nobleman, noble boy, right? He decided (laughs) to leave. He didn't go back home, though. Where did he go? He went to England. He goes to England. Ready for this? And you know what he did? He presents himself, this kid, right, presents himself to the British government and says, hey, look at me. Uh, we're not at war, France and England. You know, we don't like each other, maybe, but we're not at war. We're at peace. Um, I really want to be in a military army. My parents won't let me join the French army. I want to join the British army. And they let him. <laughs> it's weird, but they let him. Yeah. It, totally unexpected, right? They let him. And he becomes what's called a volunteer in the British army. That means mm-hmm. that he's somebody who's officer material, but because he doesn't have any high powered friends in Britain and he doesn't have any money because his parents aren't giving him money. You know, he's, he's an outcast now. Uh, he becomes a soldier who has to do soldier like things like fight in battle and stand at guard duty and stuff. But, but someday he might be an officer if he can get a free promotion, if somebody else dies, you know, under certain circumstances. So He joins a regiment, a British regiment, and that regiment is sent over to Canada in 1776 as part of the reinforcement sent to Canada to reclaim Canada from the American invasion that happened in 1775. And so he's up there in Canada. At the end of 1776, the Canada governor, Sir Guy Carleton, promotes this kid, Louis-Joseph the Chevalier d'Anteroche, to be an ensign in the 62nd Regiment of Foot, which is a British infantry redcoat regiment. Now, if you're wondering, if you're thinking, wait a minute, a French nobleman who speaks French is now a British officer in a British regiment? That makes no sense. I know, right? There's no evidence that he actually had any command of the English language. And what I'm about to tell you kind of proves it, I think, uh, to a great degree. So he's in General Burgoyne's army in the year 1777. He's in the whole campaign. They, the British get to the, the, the first battle of Saratoga, the Battle of Freeman's Farm. His regiment, the 62nd Regiment, is the regiment that really gets cut to shreds. They take so many casualties, but Louis Joseph survives, but he's captured. He's now a prisoner of war. The Americans capture him. And so... Um, in the Horatio Gates papers, which are all the letters that Horatio Gates, the American commander, sent and received, uh, is a letter from this kid, this teenage British officer, French nobleman. And it's all written in French. So I had to have it translated because I don't read French, you know. I, I, I had it translated, and it's a letter to Horatio Gates. And basically, he's, he's explaining to Gates, um, I'm a British officer, but I think I'm on the wrong side. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. weird, I think I'm on the wrong side. I I don't want to be on the British side anymore. I I want to be on your side. And so he's still a prisoner of war. They don't release him right away, you know, uh, but he's a prisoner of war and they they jostle him around a bit. He eventually ends up in New Jersey as a prisoner and he gets sick and he's cared for by a local family and he ends up marrying his nurse, the woman who nursed him to health 
in New Jersey, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, where there was a big uh, French expat kind of community there. She and her student health, they get married and they have a family. And Louis Joseph never again rejoins the British army. Interestingly enough, the British army continue to carry his name on their muster rolls until after the Revolutionary War. And they state that he's a prisoner in America. If only they knew that he actually deserted them in 1777. He wanted nothing to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he ended up um, uh, having a family. His, his, his mother gets back in contact with him. Mm -hmm. She wrote to Ben Frank, kid you not, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington. Her letters still exist in their respective papers. Okay. She wrote to all three of them, asking them to track down her son, who, you know, she knew that he became a British officer and was in America and he wasn't in the British Army. He, she had heard somehow that he had a family now. And so she wants to, somebody to track him down. Washington does it. After the war, he instructs Henry Knox, who was then Secretary at War, to go, to go find him. And Henry Knox does. Henry Knox sends Washington a letter. It's all preserved. It's wonderful stuff. Yeah. And Henry Knox lays out the whole story from the interview that he had with uh, Louis Joseph. And he talks about this, this, now he's a man, you know, this, this guy's strange career, you know, that he had and how he was supposedly a relative of General Lafayette and that Lafayette, uh, you know, that, that he, that, that. yeah, I know, small world, you know, <laughs> uh, that, that he said that he would never be, a, 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 you know, one to fight against Lafayette. So he wasn't going to be part of this, this British army he wanted to desert. And, um, you know, the kind of story kind of ends there. He eventually, you know, uh, ends up uh, uh, dying in France, uh, oddly enough, uh, uh, in 1814 under circumstances unknown. 1814? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but his family remains in America to this very day. People are descended from this kid. I'm sorry, this kid. I, I'm speaking from 1777, you know. But they're descended from this guy. And, um, you know, if you were to ask them, hey, did your ancestors serve in the war? They could say, yeah, he was a French nobleman who served and fought for the British Army. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. weird, but but true. Huh. I love that, though. You know, it just it just shows that in the middle of this world changing huge event, life was going on for people in in regular ways that we can relate to. You know, he he fell in love and met some met someone, fell in love, had a family. He you know had his own family drama. He got <laughs> worked through that. You know, it's just people have been people the whole time, <laughs> even the middle right. of all this. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and walking us through these, these incredible battles. This was really fun. It was for me too, Amelia. Thank you for inviting me. Really appreciate it. I uh, enjoyed it very much. That was so much fun. The very first time a British army ever surrendered and it was there at the Battle of Saratoga. I hope you loved learning about it. Remember to visit growingpatriots.com to find videos, coloring pages, and other resources that go along with this episode. We have them there for every single episode. You can also visit Growing Patriots on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And I'd love it if you could take a minute to leave us a review and give us a great rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That really helps other people find the show. And speaking of that, why don't you share this episode or your favorite episode with another family that might love it? Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you next time. They free 
freed us all from tyranny Risked everything for liberty And they fought so we would be America, land of the free Distributed by FCB Radio Network